Welcome to the next episode of Business Blind Spots Exposed, the podcast. Click the subscribe button and follow us. Listening. We are here with a, another live podcast uh, of the Business Blind Spots Exposed. And that's way too long to say. So I'm going to call it BBSE from now on. Uh, the Business Blind Spots Exposed, BBSE. Uh, honestly, started as a little bit of a personal journey. So I want to tell you a little bit why, about why we started and maybe why you should tune in and listen in. Uh, for me, I found that the my blind spots, the play, things that were directly behind me that I could not see or the things that limited my growth and actually might have adversely affected my career and my performance and my capability to do something because I couldn't see it. It's not the stuff that's right here in the periphery. Because you can see that stuff. You just turn to the side. It's not the stuff in front of you. It's the stuff you just don't see at all. And for me, uh, as I went through my career, I realized, uh, gosh, the more I could see my blind spots, the more powerful I become and more potent I become. Well, that's what this podcast is all about. Uh, my company creates data and analytics and visualizations to help you understand what your culture is through data so you can build a better culture in your company with the data. But if you don't know what story you're looking for or what the blind spot or what the narrative is that is holding your company back, sometimes you don't know what data to look for. So the purpose of this podcast is to help you find those stories that are the glass ceilings, as I'll call them, that hold you from getting to the next level. And that's why we invite the guests that we do. So for all that are already chimed in and starting to listen in, please tell us where you're coming from, where you're connecting from. And uh, what do you what do you do, and what is your role in the company that you're at? But before we get started with Lee here, I want to tell you some of the other people that are coming up in the next uh, uh, two or three podcasts, just so you get uh, a, a sense. We've got David Dickey who's coming on. Uh, he's going to talk to you about how to recruit by the numbers. There are numbers that will help you figure out what is the right way to do things in terms of bringing people on board, and what is the story from those numbers. We've also got Yinka who's going to be coming on on the 13th of April next week and the top behaviors of successful women business leaders. So some really interesting conversations about the data and how you can use that to really level up the next level of performance for you yourself or as the organization. But today, I'm actually really excited about having Lee. Hey, Lee, how are you doing today? I'm good, Bingai. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I'm really excited. So I want to give, Lee, I want to tell everyone a little bit about why I've, I've I've had you on here. You know, you and I were just talking a little bit before the podcast, just as I was learning a little bit more about you. And, and you were telling me about sort of the investment banking career and managing family and the work life, you know, that, that elusive work-life balance, getting back into investment banking and becoming a coach. And I really loved sort of the realizations uh, that you went through. Let me tell them a little bit more about you. So 20-year career in financial services, technology. Uh, you're a chief operating officer, uh, chief of staff. So you've operated some pretty senior level roles, so defining strategy and implementation. Uh, that's given you a really good insight into building effective teams for startups. So you learn from all these larger organizations what works, you know, I'll say, I'll call it the A-B testing. You've learned what works, what doesn't work in terms of effective, ineffective, and how to do that. So now you're focused almost exclusively on startups and entrepreneurs and, and, and helping them build the right culture, the right thought processes so that they can keep scaling. They can keep finding that sustainability, uh, the profitability, whatever their, whatever their true north is. I, I'm, I'm ad-libbing a bit here. <laughs> but you want them to help them find that compass true north so that they can find that, that path there themselves so that they are not hitting those glass ceilings. They don't have impediments to growth. They can really uh, realize that path forward. Am I characterizing that right, Lee? I mean, that's really kind of what you're focused in on. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the corporate career taught me a lot about what big companies need. Um, but what I realized is a lot of the problems become a lot harder to solve when you're big. And so working with startups, helping them get things right the first time when they're small and make sure that those solutions are scalable, hopefully stop these companies from taking on uh, the wrong paths of how to scale, how to keep their people engaged, how to keep the business growing in the right way and, and the way that they envisage when they were small. So 
I try to complement the two together, but I, I love working with people who have the enthusiasm to uh, grow and, and be quite ambitious with their goals, but also want to set up the right way so that that growth is um, much easier to sustain uh, and, and they can grow knowing that the foundations are really solid. So there's, a, I'm making some notes here because uh, I, I feel like just in the last six sentences that you said that there's a lots of things to unpack there. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> a lot, right? Um, you use the word ambitious, right? Uh, ambitious goals. T- tell me the size companies that you tend to work with and what is, what is the low end or what is the high end of ambitious goals? What can that mean to somebody? How, what is, what is, what is, is there too ambitious? There's, is there, is there too little to be ambitious? Help, help me understand that a little more. I think ambition for a starter has to be defined by the individual themselves. So um, I typically work with startups when there's one or two people involved. So they're very small to begin with, but the ambition has to come from them. So some of the people I work with are trying to provide a particular lifestyle for themselves and their family. So their ambition is to create something that is very secure, going to last a long time, potentially hand over to their children. But it's a very, their ambition compared to others might look quite small, but to them it feels huge. Then I also work with companies who uh, want to be the next Amazon. You know, they they want to be looking at really significant growth. So their ambition is quite big. And with with where they are right now may look a little bit like shooting the moon, but it's not because the plan has to be set early on so that strategically they grow and shape to match that ambition. You know, those two different kinds of companies uh, maybe just one or two people right now, but the, how their ambition is going to um, happen and take place are going to be very different and the strategies used for both very different. Now, they're both, to me, ambitious, but if you don't understand what their ambition is, it's really easy to advise them in, in kind of the wrong way because if you're anticipating that every company is going to want to grow as big as possible then you may be taking someone down the wrong path if their ambition is just to have security for their family. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to maybe read a little bit more into what I just heard from you there, right? And the idea is that even though someone wants to become as big as an Amazon or somebody wants to just create a small lifestyle business, I don't even need to say life small, right? They just want yeah. to create a lifestyle business. It's not the ambition that matters. It is the methodology and the pathway to reaching that ambition is what matters. And that's where you come in to help company build that roadmap or that those milestones to getting there. Did I get that right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you if you know roughly where you're going, so I, I typically say know where you're going, but know there's multiple paths to get there. So um, if you're somebody who's looking to provide a secure, sustainable business that supports your family, that business model is going to be more primarily focused on steady growth and sustainable security. So it, it's not going to be uh, pushing forward with any big, significant, risky plans. It's going to be just consciously growing it, making sure that what's there has a longevity to it. Whereas when someone's got ambitious goals, potentially their strategy takes more risks because they they want to make those bigger jumps between the the milestones um, in order to achieve the goals that they have. So some of it is risk appetite, some of it is where they are, what what business um, and and industry they're getting into. Sometimes those bigger jumps are easier than others. Uh, You know, fintech is a lot easier to become big very quickly, as opposed to maybe a product line that is going to need to enter the market in a particular way. So call it BBSC, the Business Blind Spots Exposed podcast, uh, for a reason, right? And the idea is what is the what is the perspective here that we can someone can distill and take away from this saying, ah, that applies to me. So I'm I'm gonna tell you what I think I just heard as a potential blind spot here is that 
it's not about the business or the business type that makes the difference um, for the the owner or the entrepreneur or the uh, the writer or whatever the case may be, right? Mm-hmm. It's really more about defining that pathway and being cognizant and aware of the choices that they're making in reaching that path that matters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Uh, a lot of it also goes down to the mindset of the, the founder. Mm-hmm. So when when you're initially starting up, the focus is very much on survival and survival doesn't help you understand how to create something sustainable and long term. It just says, what do I look like for the next month, quarter, year? And that can be quite, that's not a strategy, that's reacting to market forces. um, And you aren't really in control of the strategy at that point. Whereas if you think in terms of how do I grow, that helps you create a pathway. Now, the problem is the majority of people um, think of growth in those big terms, So if you're a company that's not looking to take over the world, you just want a a piece of the market, you may think that thinking in terms of growing is too big. It's it's outside your level of ambition. So you stay in survival mode. And particularly uh, smaller businesses during the pandemic have really been caught out by this because that also means that they don't tend to have contingency plans in place. They don't imagine that things will get get more difficult than now because they already feel that things are pretty difficult because they're in survival mode. So I try to help them understand that growth is in, in, an individual thing. And so you can grow and, and remain small or you can grow and be large, right? But you have to think that you're going to grow in order to get that security later on as well. So, look, uh, the types of companies that uh, might hear us talking here could be companies that have got two or three people. It could be companies with 10 employees in the company. It could be 250. Yeah. They're all at a different point in that pathway. I mean, look, I, I could see someone saying, this is all great. This is all fluff. I don't really care. I just got to get my stuff done every day. Who the hell's got time for this? What's your response to that? What do you say to that? It's easier to fight a fire before it starts. <laughs> and it's way cheaper. Um, most risk analysis, strategy analysis sounds like fluff until you're sitting there with a real significant problem, whether that's uh, suddenly your audience or your market goes Uh, suddenly everybody's now stuck indoors because of a pandemic. (laughs) It can be really expensive to solve the problem when it's critical. So most of what I deal with is the what ifs before they actually happen. It doesn't necessarily mean you're doing anything different. It's the awareness. um, You know, it's those blind spots of saying, what if my customer base suddenly wasn't there? What if I wasn't able to go out to people's homes or wasn't able to meet with people? It's that what if scenarios that we don't typically think of because we we just assume that tomorrow is going to look like today and it's going to look like yesterday. And this pandemic has taught us that that's not true. Things can change really quickly, which is why the blind spots are so important. Having somebody else say, these are the things that could happen and you have to be prepared for them can keep you one step ahead of everyone else who's still in that reactive, I'll deal with it when it becomes an issue kind of mindset. So so I'm going to write down what I think here is what I I wrote down as sort of, I think, a second blind spot here. And I, I like the quote here. Uh, it's easier to fight a fire before it starts, right? I, mean, yeah. I, I don't think you have to kind of convince anybody. That makes a lot of sense. But the challenge is as people start to, and, you know, back to number one, the pathway matters, not the outcome. I mean, I, I mean, the pathway matters, not just the outcome. You've got to build that pathway to get to that outcome. So if you combine those two together, what I'm hearing is you've got to take the time to be intentional and in saying, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this. Because in order for that opportunity to appear for that next stage, you need to have planned to be looking for it and know what it looks like. Yeah. Am I, yeah. Am, I, am I combining those together? Am I making some sense there? 
Yeah, absolutely. Because I think the trouble is, if you stay reactive, then you may stay open to opportunities, but that opportunity will happen and you won't be best placed to take advantage of it. And what we typically see is companies, particularly those that, you know, we, we tend to think of startups as all struggling for, for customers and, you know, hearing tumbleweed on their customer base. But a lot of startups actually go the other way and they get a lot of demand before they're ready. And there's a there's a risk that they go, I'll deal with that later. I'll, I'll sort this out later. But if that momentum has already started, there isn't going to be a later that gets any easier. <laughs> it, it, however busy it feels now, it's going to go exponential as you grow. And so it can be a mindset change to make time now because it feels like you haven't got any. But I can assure you, you won't you will have even less when you're even busier. And the problem is just getting bigger with you. So this is interesting. I was uh, listening to a, a podcast myself a little earlier this morning and was talking about this idea of focus and being hyper focused on what you do. And it talked about uh, some marketing people that are out there, Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk and um, and Seth Godin and a couple of you know Seth Godin known as the marketing, you know, godfather, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and they 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 asked you know Gary Vaynerchuk is you know a big noted speaker these days and they said do you know what Gary Vaynerchuk started out with and they said I'm sure somebody here on the podcast knows and someone chimed in and said wine he started talking about wine but now he talks about running businesses and how to run businesses and how to build culture and build greater awareness and the point was you started very laser focused and say I do this and I do it super well and once I've done that super well. Here's what I'm going to do super well next. Uh, yeah. I think that's what you're alluding to here, right? Find, find your swim lane. Find the thing that you do incredibly well. And if you build that level of success, then it's very easy to say, well, I can do that really well. Why don't you believe I can do this? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. If you can, if you can figure things out doing the one thing that you do really well, then that gives you a better foundation for then diversifying and, and spreading into other areas, you know, because... Some of it is branding. Some of it is once you're proven on the market, um, people will give you a little bit more leeway because they see your prior experience and, and prior results. But mainly they see your your attitude. You know, uh, Gary V talks about running a company now because enough people have spoken to him about, hey, you seem to run successful companies. <laughs> right? and, and what he sells isn't as important as how he sells it. And, and I think that's, that's based on him having firm foundations and it's a replicative rep, replicable <laughs> templated version right so he ran one company really successfully for wine the next company could be about anything he just applied the same rules yeah. but thought maybe a little bit more ambitiously tried to to widen his scope he couldn't have done that if the wine business was based on reactive you know dealing with things as fires because there's no confidence that that can be transferred to other other opportunities. Whereas he proved his model worked. So he just used that model in a more ambitious way in a different sector. So uh, I want to make take a quick pause here. We've had a couple of people have jumped on via the various live platforms. I'd love for you to join in and tell us uh, and help us shape the conversation here. Leah's dropping lots of little nuggets here, and I've got my third blind spot that I've already written here, the idea of build your space before expanding to others, right, and build your defensible turf. Do you all agree with that? Uh, is that something that's worked for you? Have you seen otherwise? Do you have contrary advice? I would uh, put put into the chats. So I would love to hear what you what you think. I want to take that, though, and, and go in maybe one step deeper, and that is the idea of – so I work with a lot of pest control companies today. And the reason why is a focus, right? Uh, I would like to believe that 80% of what all those pest control companies are doing is pretty darn near the same, <laughs> right? Uh, it may be a different color, shape, or type of bug uh, based on the type, part of the country, or the chemical that you use, or the treatment methodology, whatever the case may be. But about 80% is the same in terms of the business model. Where I'm going with this is, there's specialization even within a market that most people from the outside are looking out saying, oh, that's the same stuff, right? There's 10 companies, they're all pest control. No, they're not all pest control. Talk to me about that. The idea of 
even though you might be in a competitive market, human resources is a competitive market, right? Uh, coaching, uh, business coaching is a competitive market. Does that matter to to that building that pathway and carving out your own little niche? How how does that work? I I mean it's it's incredibly important because it it's counterintuitive because we think that by spreading the net as wide as possible that we will capture more uh, custom. So uh, you may think that as a pest control, just say pest control. Don't don't say specifically what you do. The problem is it's like going when you go into a restaurant and you're given one of those books as a menu. <laughs> it's got like 10 pages. You can't decide because there's too many there. So what do you do? You typically say, well, OK, do I feel like eating meat or fish or veg? Right. OK, I, I fancy meat. Right. OK, so what kind of meat? And you scale it down. It's quicker if the menu is shorter and you know exactly what it is you're looking for. You can find the dish that you want quicker. That applies to business as well. The more you can say, I'm very specific and this is what I do, it gives people more of an, an awareness to be able to say for sure, really quickly, I either need you or I don't. Right? Google searches. A Google search of um, pest control is going to bring back way too many results. It's not helpful at all, but they're going to get more and more and more specific. And that specificity makes it easier for people to find you. So even though it goes, it does run counter to intuitive to say, I, I, I can do all sorts, by, by shoving it down into one niche, you give people an easier way to find you. And the irony is the more you say, this is the thing I do, the easier it is for people to contact you and say, I know you say that you only look after this type of bug, but I've got this problem. Can you solve that problem? So it doesn't stop the other inquiries. It doesn't stop you from being um, communicated with. What it does is it provides them with the hook to say, you're the person who does this. And that gives them something to work with far better than saying, I do the rest, the same stuff as everybody else does. So this is really interesting. As you're saying that, I love this idea of building a menu uh, of the capabilities that you can easily provide. And, and the analogy that came to mind, because I love my analogies, <laughs> is we have a restaurant here called Cheesecake Factory. Do you all, do you all have Cheesecake Factory? Uh, we don't, but just that name alone means that I really want to have one. <laughs> Well, Cheesecake Factory here is—I is, mean, it has been bought out and become a very large company. I mean, lots of lots of different locations, very very nice. And but their menu is—I I, it must have forty-eight pages with you know 14, yeah. 14 to twenty items on each page. Yeah. Uh, dr the drinks alone are three pages, and you now—it's funny because when when I want to go get a uh, you know some Mexican food, I don't think of Cheesecake Factory, even though they provide that. I know they provide it. I don't go there. It's too complicated. But yeah. if I want to get uh, American food, then I go to another restaurant. If I want to get Mediterranean, I go, Cheesecake Factory does all of that. Because honestly, I don't want to flip through all the pages. Uh, it, the only reason I go to Cheesecake Factory is when I go with a bunch of people that I don't, that, that's not family or good friends, people that I don't know and I don't know what they want. So I just say, all right, they can choose for themselves. Yeah. But it's the local Mexican shop that's going to get my business because I know exactly what they do. And that's what I'm in the mood for. And my and kids, exactly. that's what we're having for dinner tonight. <laughs> exactly. And the thing is, it, it's actually the starting point, right? So if you right. start from the point of what do people want, you will have that book, right? Because everybody will want something different. And trying to provide that variety when you're a small business is near impossible, Whereas if you start from what am I good at and what do I know I can deliver with excellence every single time, that starts with what you're offering. Now, it, you still have to wrap that as a, a problem that people need to be solved. You can't go to market and say, I'm really good at this if nobody wants what you're really good at. But it helps you to, to really define down what it is you're really good at and makes it easier for the customers to find you. When you start your offering with what do people want, it's too vague and you'll get lost. And, and as you say, the, the it will only apply when it's so generic and so vague 
that people who are coming to you don't really know what they want. Now, as a business, they are those wasted calls, the call where you're on for 20 minutes for someone who you work out within five, don't really need what you offer, <laughs> but they don't know what they want. And they're using you to try to, to find out, to distill it down. So it's not a good use of your time to cast that net so widely because it, it, it all it really means is you, you waste a lot of time talking to people who aren't then going to and buy your services or products. So if we kind of take that to its sort of its natural end there, uh, I heard a quote once that says, your success in business has, is directly correlated to your ability to say no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think that's what you're saying is, look, if pest control example again here, right? If, if you do mosquitoes and someone comes to you and says, hey, I want you to deal with bed bugs, you say, look, my business is not optimized for doing bed bugs. I do yeah. mosquito. If I can help you there, I'd love to help you. But you know what? If like two years later you happen to be doing bed bugs and they, they continue to be a uh, customer, you can reach out to them and say, "Hey, we're starting to do bed bugs. Oh, I, I trust these guys. Yeah, that sounds great, right? It's it's an easy exactly. piece to sell at that at that point in time. Am, am yeah. I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. As soon as you can give them that hook that says, "This is what I do," then it gives you the ability to then control the conversation. So if they contact you and they say, "Do you do bed bugs?" It might not be in a particular area that you're excelling right now, or it might be somewhere that you think, you know what, this is the 10th conversation I've had about big bugs. Maybe I need to get into this market, right? So you control the conversation a little bit more because that, that, that's, that gives you control over your strategy and how your company grows, right? If you know that the people who ask you for these other services are you know, it doesn't appear to be as profitable as what you're currently working in, or it seems like it's going to be too complicated. It gives you the choice to say, I'm still getting the inquiry, but I get the choice to say no. It also gives you the choice to say, yeah, we do that. And that's, that's usually the part where people really have that light bulb moment, because when we tell people to niche down, they worry about lost opportunity. And it's flipping that on its head, saying, no, it gives you more opportunity and the choice of what opportunity to take advantage of. Yeah. So I want to change, switch gears in you a little bit here. And I want to start to talk a little bit about the numbers and the data, because I hear so many people say they're numbers people. I don't know if I necessarily give much credence to that sometimes when I hear yeah. it, <laughs> because uh, they say they're numbers people. They don't necessarily know their numbers. When I say numbers, I think of data as well. The purpose in my mind of data or numbers is not to tell me what the story is, but to give me some supporting guide points in understanding the story. How does that sit with you? I mean, you've looked at large strategic organizations. You've looked, you've had numbers of people under in your organization. What does that mean to you? How does that resonate with you saying, talking about numbers and data that way? Yeah, I, I think I've seen so many dashboards and so many decks of of numbers and KPIs and metrics that aren't used. So that they're seen as like static data and they're used to validate where you are, but not really used to tell you where to go. Yeah. And I partly because as a COO, you are tasked with thinking in terms of what could go wrong. So you're constantly looking for potential risks. But when I look at data, I'm looking at what I call the mirror metrics. So if you're telling me that you've got 60% conversion on the sales, I'm looking at the 40% that didn't convert. And you're always looking for what the data isn't telling you as is that something to be concerned about or not. So in a company, you might have high attrition, but that isn't always a bad thing if you know how to read the data to say, well, actually, the, the turnover is, is good because every person we bring in is better talent. It's more experience. We're getting better, better quality people, whereas typically we have these assumptions about the data that says, oh, low attrition is better. You know, we, we don't we want people to stay, not if they're not very good. <laughs> you know, and sometimes the people who aren't leaving are the ones that are also not engaged in what you're doing as a business. So when I look at data, it needs to 
provide me with action points. So what, what does this data compel me to do differently or to change or to give the thumbs up to do more of? And also what is the data not telling me? So what can I gauge from the number? If Because if they're not coming back as 100%, something is different, something is changing. And I, I want to be on top of that so that it doesn't become a bigger problem as I scale up. Uh, Gerald, uh, you thanks for chiming in. You said number for value for me. Uh, tell me more about what you mean. I don't know if I'm specifically interpreting that properly. You're saying the numbers are uh, are the value to you? I'm, uh, help, help me understand a little bit better. I'd love to understand more about what you're at, what you're saying there, and love to get uh, Lee to, to comment on that. So, and and I think what I heard from you, Lee, is this idea: number one, getting action points, things that I can say, all right, I'm I'm getting up from my desk here or my phone or whatever the case may be. I'm getting, I'm gonna go make a change for the better because I understand what's happening. Yeah. Uh, the other is what what is data is not about answer, giving you answers. Data is about helping you find the right questions to ask. Did I get yeah. that right? Yeah. So when we think of KPIs, usually it's this idea that we want to hit a particular sales target or we want to achieve a particular income level, something that has one um, element to it. The, the problem is for most companies, when they hit that, they don't then readjust. They go, oh, great, we're, we're there. So one of, the, one of the jobs I did before uh, I got into investment banking was working for a car company. And every every day we would be given a sheet where where it showed where in terms of our competitors we were. So we were like second or third on the list most of the time. But what I realized was the numbers didn't change very much. So in the morning, we would be third. The next morning, we would be third. And uh, two weeks later, we'd still be third because actually the data had got to a point where it wasn't it wasn't useful because the numbers weren't shifting i'm much more interested when data is moving around because it allows you to see what's working and what isn't you know if you have a social media post and there's no likes why is there no likes is it because it's bad content because people aren't seeing it because the people who are seeing it don't typically like things because they, they just are that kind of person, you don't know. And so you have to try different things and you want to see the data move with what you try so that you know that you're achieving or you're going down the wrong, wrong path and you'll go, you need to change course again. So that, that's, that's really interesting, that whole idea of the transactional nature of the, the, the data, right? If, if you're not constantly seeing things move, well, it's hard to say, all right, I'm, I'm at third, I'm at third, I'm at third. Well, what, what do I change? You can't make any, I mean, to your first, your point of, you got to have an action point. There's no action point there. I'm yeah. Insane, right? uh, you know, and what we do as we try to build data is to start help un companies understand how the culture is running based on the behavior of individuals. Mm. Now they can start to see is the behavior, where does the, where I, where do I need to turn the knob, the lever, the dial for yeah. the behavior? If there's a performance metric that we need them to hit or as a group to hit, now the, that manager, supervisor, owner, whatever the case may be, that stakeholder can then opt, lean forward and say, look, uh, I need you to increase your revenue per hour. You know, we've had a couple of companies who want their revenue per hour to be higher, their production per hour to be higher. But then they also say that we want safety be to be much higher as well. So less uh, harsh braking, less harsh driving type events. Yeah. said, well, uh, how can you do that? Because as you want your production per hour to go up, your harsh braking events go up as well because you're yeah. sending them on driving faster, essentially. Exactly. Uh, and I think that's kind of what you're saying is that the narrative lies in between the data, not the yeah. data, not the answer itself, right? Yeah. And, and typically, a company will pick a, because there's so many different data points, they'll pick what they think are the, the key six or seven because yeah. they feel that's manageable but they don't go back and check how often those metrics are telling them something useful so yes there's there's sometimes when say for example your um your data is about how you're spending your budget for the year then you don't want any nasty surprises you don't want that number being out too much uh, every month 
So there's a, a stability there. But equally, you should still look at it for are you getting that forecast right? Is there other levers that you can put in place? When we're talking about people, seeing something not change month on month has this non-data impact. Because if if people's, for example, in that exa- example there with uh, getting dry, uh, people to stop doing the hard braking and, and driving differently, but get project- productivity up, how does that affect the person who's being asked to do both? You're like you're giving them an unsolvable problem. And that's when we start seeing lack of engagement. So it's it's not necessarily about having key data points. It's understanding how the data points tell you something useful. And that might then tell you what other data you pull in specifically to look at what what that problem could be. Gerald uh, kind of chimed in here and gave us, uh, you know, number is the value for me convert to top and bottom line revenue slash income. And uh, he's kind of put this point in here. The hardest team to manage is the team in the middle, which is which is very interesting because I think this goes to your point where I think lots of people are looking at KPIs or key performance indicators from the industry and say that's it's a one size fits all. It's the farthest thing from the truth. Yeah. What you're saying is. Stop looking at KPIs from the industry and start to understand the behaviors that you're trying to engender or culture or or promote within your organization and start to find the numbers or the intersection between the numbers that help you understand whether that story is occurring or not. Did I get that right? Yeah, completely. So Gerald is completely right. The the people in the middle, so you've got the, the top telling you that they want to achieve certain targets and... Typically, what happens is we put that down to the staff at the bottom who will nine times out of 10, because they're doing the work day in, day out, will be able to see potential issues or challenges in reaching that. What we typically see in larger companies is the middle team absorbing both. So they absorb the drive from above to get the numbers better, but they also absorb the concerns and queries from the people telling them that there's a problem because the expectation is we want you to hit this number and if you don't hit this number then you're doing something wrong well if you're telling a a middle manager we want to see this number guess what number they give you (laughs) they absolutely give you that number where that might be hiding what's really happening so I always think it's, it's an interesting thing when we try to make companies more productive to then also look at things like employee engagement, because you can see if the drive for extra productivity is being embraced by the people doing the work. And um, I remember one of the the businesses I worked in, uh, we got a new CEO and he, he terrified everyone because for one day, every I think every week initially, he would just walk into one of the office blocks walking to one of the meeting rooms and sit down and just go, so tell me what's going on. And there were people who were several, several layers down in the organization, able to tell him exactly what was happening on their project. But had that been allowed to go through all of those layers, he would never have heard of those problems, of the challenges. Um, And it, it gave this sense of I know that you're not telling me everything I need to know and I know that buffer now I would challenge to say that's usually because they're primed that way from your top level managers Um, but at least he showed willing to realize that there was a disconnect between how the data travels up an organization and what's really happening to the people who are effectively delivering your business's success so this is interesting because, uh, I mean, the, 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 the story that came to mind or the anecdote that came to mind is I have a very a good friend of mine. She is a top producing sales uh, exec for the company that she works at. And she and I were talking about this a little bit. And she said, you know, I every quarter I am, every month, every quarter, I'm constantly saying, here's my target. And I'm hit, not only hitting her over the fence, I'm hitting it way, you know, way beyond that every single month. But I keep getting dinged by my management for not entering opportunities into the CRM system. 
Meanwhile, there are other people on this, uh, uh, in the organization who never hit their target, but they're always entering their information into the CRM system and they're getting attaboys. She said, yep. is that really the message that you want me to get that <laughs> you really want me to enter data into the system and not close deals? Which, which yep. one is it? And I think yep. that's kind of what you're talking about, right? It's Absolutely. And, and when I was um, a service delivery manager um, in infrastructure services uh, for technology, everything is based on the data that's provided, how many calls you're taking, how many problems you're solving and, and so on. And it was always a problem to look at the overlying data that was coming out because you would see somebody with massive stats. You know, they're closing loads of calls. They seem to be really productive. One layer down, when you saw the description of the calls, they were password resets, changing someone's mouse, you know, telling them how to find something in Windows. And you, But when we took that data we had to take that top level of data because it's so difficult to get across qualitative data in the same way. So this, the real story behind the numbers sometimes gets lost because the nuances can't be, they can't be shown as a, a graph. And I think that's, that's a problem across the board for a lot of the data that we collect. That overall number doesn't tell you anything unless you know exactly what that number comprises of but that can be more subtle than just another number below it. Well, so, gosh, coming full circle here, right? Um, if you don't know what the pathway is and you can't define what success is, you don't know what the fairy tale ending is supposed to be, yeah. then how the heck do you know if the numbers are getting you there or not? Because if, if you don't know that you're driving towards Disney World, then how do you know whether to take a left or a right? And if you went three miles or three kilometers in the wrong or right direction, right? Uh, yeah, you, you gotta have you ha you gotta have the guidepost. So it kind of comes back to where we started in this idea that you got to, regardless of the ambition, whether you want to be a lifestyle business or you want to be the you want to buy Amazon next month, whatever, mm -hmm. you gotta have the guidepost by which to say that's a good number for me. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, and no one can tell you. So you have to be able to define it yourself. You know, define what success feels like for you and then get your data su to support that. I think sometimes we can have this advice, you know, particularly around metrics. Um, there's a lot of guidance online for what what does what are your success criteria? What are the best KPIs? Because people get a little bit lost. But the reality is, what is it you want to achieve and what's the best way of assessing that you're getting there? And you are the only person who can come up with that. Now, when you then bring in experts to help you work on the data and, and create your KPIs or create your dashboard, you're giving them so much more information that they can work with. Whereas uh, typically a lot of companies say, we don't know what we want to measure. So you tell us. Well, then you get the generic out of the box data that tells you something and it makes a really look pretty looking dashboard and really great graphs but you're still sitting there going I can't do anything with this information and, and realistically they are there so that you hit that milestone you go yeah I know I've got to that next goal that next milestone we've put in place now the KPI needs to change in order to get us to the next one and it's more than just saying go from 20 to 30 or 100 to 1,000. It's about is it still the right metric that shows that success or will we just be looking at the number going, great, we sold 10 more, brilliant. It, you don't, it doesn't give you anything to really help you understand how to take it even further. So this is really interesting. So as a company, we try to go and help people quantify their culture in, in a way that they can understand it because we take a range of different dimensions to look at sort of behaviors and say, look, here's a five here, here's a six here, here's a 97 here. And then they can start to say, why is that? Well, now you've got something that starts to help you understand the culture. And I think this goes almost directly to what you're saying, but what Gerald is saying here, right? I would remind people that I coach that you're not paid to send email you are paid to create value, right? And also that the brand promises the North Star. So we're talking about if you have these core values sitting on a wall here, that's trying to tell you here's the North Star. This is where you're supposed to be going. And you start to build the steps on that path towards the journey of the top of Mount Everest there or 
or uh, the hill hill next door to your house, whatever whatever it may be. But if you start to build a pathway for that, then you can actually start to look at the things that truly tell you that you're moving down that path as opposed to just looking at what everyone else does is check the box of what the industry is saying, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's why it, it it it's not, if you're thinking that this is fluff, you're not seeing the big picture, <laughs> yeah. right? It, it, you've got to understand, in order to be able to understand the big picture, you've got to be able to break it into components and see how you're moving along that line. Am I putting that yeah. together right? Oh, definitely. You, you know, using the example before, if if somebody is saying that their prime driver is productivity and one of their core values isn't productivity, an employee is going to look and go, well, why do I need to worry about the values when I'm being asked to do something completely different? And And this is why that joining everything up, the data won't all pretty prettily sit in one spreadsheet. But you need to understand how to interpret the data all together so that you're getting the right information. You know, if you're setting targets for your workforce, it to me, it's all, it's a natural thing to say, OK, how do your values, how do your culture help them understand how to do that? So we we might say, um, you know, the, the banking industry has had some um interesting conversations in the last few years for incentivizing people in the wrong way right because they were incentivized on how many sales they made and not the quality that you know was it the right thing for the customer and yet i can almost guarantee that in every single one of those banks they had core values and i can almost guarantee one of them was integrity (laughs) which one's going to matter more to the employee the one that make sure that their salary keeps being paid, that they get the promotion opportunities, that they they are seen to be doing the right thing by the company. And like the example with your friend, it sets the wrong example because the incentive is to tick a box to make the data say what you want it to say, rather than looking at the underlying reasons why they're able to achieve those numbers. <laughs> Uh, Gerald says, can you say Wells Fargo or Enron? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, I think fantastic examples there, Gerald. Thanks for, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I think something I want to distill here and, and, and tell me if I'm oversimplifying a little bit, Lee, is that if someone says, this, if they started out this journey with us on this conversation and they said, hey, this stuff is all fluff or they think this is all u- useless, well, then you're probably also spending on uh, making some leaps of faith here. You're also probably thinking, well, I'm I'm in the pest control business and there's really no unique differentiator. And you're right, because you're not taking the time to define what that North Star is. What are the core values? Because that defines how successful you are in terms of achieving those milestones. And that what that's what comes through as what you do as a company, a la Wells Fargo or Enron. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, as a, as a pest control company. So are you the company that goes in and tortures the house down because that gets rid of the pests? Or are you going respecting the, the uh, environment, making sure you keep things tidy? You know, those things matter. And when we keep things too generic, too overwhelming, oh, we all do the same thing. We don't recognize the nuance. So even if there are 10 companies who offer exactly the same thing, they're run by different people. And that in itself will mean that they were all going a slightly different route. And when we say people buy from people, that's where it comes from. They may not expect an interview with the uh, the boss every time before they decide to buy. But the way that the company operates and interacts with customers is going to be defined by how the founder has has set the vision for the company. You know, is, is it torching the house down um, because you just want the result? Or do you take other factors into account? Customers will look at both and go, yeah, I don't care. Just get rid of them. Or, no, I I want you to be careful around me. And I want to know that that's intrinsic in the way that you're going to approach working with me. Yeah, I, you know, I put a post out on LinkedIn recently. It says, uh, I think 82% or 78 or 82%, a pretty significant number of job applicants will look at the core values of the company because cult and, and, and the culture of the company in their consideration as to whether they even first number first apply for the job and number two, if they'll take the role. So if you're having a problem attracting people and keeping people, 
uh, it all kind of starts here. Uh, and it, you know, the way I tell my kids is, look, if, if, if I tell you I want to take you to the top of a mountain, this beautiful mountain I want to take you and I want to take you on this hike, there's two ways you can go on the hike. I can kind of almost drag you up the hill, which is painful for everybody. But guess what? The work still has to get done to get you to the top of the mountain. Or you can say, I can't wait to get to the top of this mountain and enjoy every step of the way. Guess what? The work is the same. You're sweating in either case. The work has to get done. It's whether you enjoy the ride, <laughs> enjoy the trek or not. Yeah. The vista is beautiful regardless. So <laughs> yeah. if you are toiling away and you continue to toil away and you can't seem to find uh, light at the end of the tunnel, maybe it's just the approach that you're taking and maybe looking at this bigger picture, bigger picture objective might be the way to go from I'm just cranking the wheel every single day to all of a sudden the wheel is starting to turn by itself. Did I, uh, did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. And, and looking back to your analogy of the trek, right, what you're looking at there is as the, as the person who wants to go on the, on the walk, that it's going to happen regardless. But there's a point at which maybe maybe one of your kids go, but but day I've broke my foot. <laughs> and that's the that's the difficulty. When we're trying to lead a company somewhere, we, we can get so focused on what we want to achieve, we forget to just double check that everyone is is good for that. And and that's where that that depth of data comes into it. It's understanding that people in your company will know things that you don't. And if you don't find a mechanism to help them give you that feedback, then potentially a problem will get worse and worse. And by the time you recognize it's so much more difficult to steer it back to um, a, a successful route. You know, and if you were halfway up the mountain before you look back and go, oh, yeah, your, your foot's like. In, in pieces <laughs> it's a lot harder to get mountain rescue up when you're halfway up <laughs> i mean if, if we, really, we really were to apply that analogy to my kids it's three minutes after we started hiking that say i gotta go to the bathroom <laughs> oh yeah absolutely <laughs> how many times <laughs> i tell you go to the bathroom <laughs> yeah they will definitely tell you that there's a problem <laughs> so uh we're coming to towards the, the close of our hour here and i will tell you i feel like this conversation has moved very very quickly and I, <laughs> there's so much more to explore here lee I, I i wish we actually had more time distill it for me i'm gonna make this really difficult on you give me three steps uh two to three steps someone could take in terms of heading down this path where would you, where would you start if you were there if we're talking for trying to keep it around the the, the sort of use of data um mm -hmm. the first thing is always know where you're going like just be really clear what's the plan um it's easier to constantly look forward and to strategize from where you stand now but it's really difficult to uh, really understand what's achievable that way because it, it you will have less idea of uh, how far you can go so I always think start with the end in mind, right? So, so it's what is the North goal, uh, North Star? What is the ultimate that you want to achieve? Then you bring down what are the components of what you do that are important to achieving that goal. So it's not just a number that you want to hit in terms of revenue or number of customers or location reach, but actually what does that really look like does that mean more people in the organization does it mean multiple locations what what does that really boil down to and then how are you going to track the success of those from where you are now so for example if it's a location um you need to know how many people are, are in each of the locations how many customers get serviced at what point that triggers the need for a second location and is that location uh, a bigger place in that area or do you expand to another area so understanding how you're really going to use the data to actively get towards your north star goal uh i'm i i've learned a couple of things along the way here uh I, and i think the three things that are is know where you're going and and what and but in order to be able to know where you're going, you need to define that North Star, I think is number one yeah. I heard, right? Number two is what is really important to the narrative, right? I mean, if you know what your North Star is, 
Um, again, if you're driving to Disney World, uh, do you really care that there's a fancy uh, water park off to the right, to the right here? Because you need to, you know, you need to get to Disney World and you got to get there in 15 minutes, or or not. Uh, and then how do you track that success? And because once you can track that success, then you can have a measuring stick by which to take action. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as what I'm hearing, it sounds like those are the three fundamentals that you're not doing one time. You will continue to do as the company expands, as the personal changes, as your services, as your customers change. The dynamics will, I mean, it sounds like these three things are actually just a consistent system that you'll be doing over and over again is that oh, right absolutely absolutely your, your data should be an active tool for you um it's not showing you where you've been it's showing you where you're going so um using the disneyland right so when you get to that junction where that water park is that's an opportunity for you to go okay does the north star really still matter do we still really want to get to disneyland or is this a better opportunity um, and having the awareness that you can make that choice and the implications of that, i.e., if you go to the water park, you won't make it to Disneyland, makes it clearer for people. And so you you have these moments in time where you check your progress and just check you're still going in the right direction and that it's a direction that feels right for what you want to get out of your business. Well, Leah, I, I will tell you in the course of this conversation, something that is that has kind of opened up to me or what I've heard is that, look, this, if you are not seeing success, it's not because of, it's probably not because of passion. It's probably more about being able to lean into your intention. If you can define what that intention is and you can be passionate about that intention, gosh, there's not much that holds you back. I mean, I feel like personally that has I have seen a lot of that myself. I know where I want to go and I'll be damned if anything, anybody's going to stop me. <laughs> and, and I think a lot of people have the passion, but, and this is kind of where you can help is helping yeah. them take and build that passion into an intention and a pathway to turn that passion, not into just something I said I wanted to do, but traction that they can say, I've got the plaque on the wall to prove it. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it, passion is is great, but I think sometimes it's it's misinterpreted. You know, we talk a lot about entrepreneurs and founders, you know, just follow your passion. And for a lot of people, that doesn't tell them that there's anything behind that. Like, as long as you believe hard enough, you can get it. But, you know, you can't win the lottery without buying a ticket. You have to put something in place. So if you think of, of just that example if if you want to win the lottery you buy the ticket you get that thrill of knowing now that it is actually possible now yeah there's so many factors that are going to make it unlikely but you still recognize that by taking the action you've made it that one more feasible when it comes to your business the same thing applies like you you can see what you want and it may feel unachievable but when you start taking action towards it it starts generating more and more um, belief that it is achievable. That combined with the passion gets you there. But the, yep. I think there's a, there's a risk that we talk about passion as if that's all that you need. It's mm -hmm. not. It's going to be is, trouble. This is this is interesting because I and I gosh we're right on. But another <laughs> thing that came up for me as we're saying this, and this is why I love this conversation here is someone told me that what they love about businesses, as opposed to going into a sport or to the Olympics, for example, in order for you to get the gold medal, bronze or silver in, in, in the 5,000 meter run, that is something that is externally defined as success. Mm. And they said, what I love so much about the idea of business is you can define what gold, silver and bronze is for yourself, Definitely. right? And that is, they said, why I love being in business because I can be passionate about going and get, getting the gold medal of 5,000, but I've got to do it by somebody else's terms. In yeah. business, you set your own terms for what gold medal is, and damn it, you can go and do it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You've got to come up with a plan for training for it. That's all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just the plan. It, as yeah. long as you know what success means to you, um, anything is possible. And for somebody else, it may look like you're achieving nothing, 
but for you it's everything and and that's what we need to get back to i think external comparisons on success make it really difficult for you to feel like you're getting anywhere and actually just running your own business is miles above so many other people who aren't even trying to take that step well uh gerald first of all thank you for spending some time uh chiming in and you made some good and really relevant points here i, I appreciate i appreciate you doing that uh, to all those others who uh, listened in and who may listen in the future, thanks for uh, taking some time to listen to uh, me and 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 get some get some nuggets from Lee. But uh, last and, and most importantly, Lee, thank you, thank you for the time. I appreciate you uh, trying to distill so many years of expertise and perspective into the course of one hour in in a way that someone as simple as me could uh, could could write down and get some uh, get some nuggets from. Thank you.